Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Amanda's here with me. Hello. We're doing a special post-election episode, not our normal stuff with clips and all of that. This is a rapid response. Rapid response. <laughs> this, this is more like the bonus shows that we do, usually just for members, but this is going out to everyone. And uh, the primary reason for this is is not because we have really important rapid response that people need to hear. I think we have some interesting things to say, but also it's totally outside of our capacity to make a real show right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. After after these, you know, couple of weeks that we've had. And uh, so just to give a sense, I mean, like many of you, I think we've been watching cable news for. Oh, happily. Mm-hmm. Three and a half days, not our normal style. Yeah, I mean, you know, mixed in with some other stuff, but, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of cable news because they're the ones doing all the numbers. So yeah, and uh, I, personally, I I feel like when I watch cable news, which is usually when we're visiting family mm-hmm. that watches cable <laughs> news, that it's it's sort of like being in a coma. <laughs> Just like a short one, or just like a few, a just a few days in a coma mm-hmm. when you wake up and realize that time has passed mm-hmm. and you don't know how or where it went, and you certainly didn't absorb anything new or interesting in the meantime. Yeah, this is like Vegas, like walking into a casino and they they just suddenly you've been there for days and you don't remember most of them. Yeah, it's kind of like that. And I, I feel like, look, if if I were a conspiratorially minded person, I would suggest that you know the the media had something to do with designing this election the way it has come out <laughs> because it could not be better for them from a business model perspective it's true it's not election day it's election week yeah, yeah. think of the, think of the ratings comparatively yeah everyone's tuning in every 5 seconds to see what's the latest what's the latest they're constantly yeah. promising that you know the next big reveal will be yeah. just after the next break <laughs> And it never is. No. It's the world's worst soap opera <laughs> where nothing actually happens. And there and there is news happening. And, right. and I mean, there's like so much detail that they could be going into. Races around the country, mm-hmm. ballot initiatives. Oh, also, I know. We've heard none of that on cable news. No. It's amazing. And, and today, you know, I, I woke up. This morning to the news of the thwarted terrorist attack in Philadelphia or, you know, suspected QAnon people headed to Philadelphia with guns and like who knows what they were going to end up doing. But, you know, I I read that last night. I I woke up to it this morning. You, I guess, caught wind of it last night. And then, you know, we had cable news on in the background all day and it was like four o'clock in the afternoon before that got mentioned Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because up to that point they just had to repeat the same thing over and over over again about the numbers that haven't moved yet or have moved just Uh, a little bit no my favorite is the is the okay we have an update for you and it's literally the exact same thing that they said hours ago too close to call too close to call too close to call as though we've like hit some new milestone. And, I think oh, I think they interrupted a correspondent to say we have an update and the update is that we have relabeled this from too soon to call to too close to call. Mm-hmm. Like 
no, literally nothing has changed other than our reason for saying why we haven't called it yet. <laughs> and we just needed to interrupt everyone right. to let you know that. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it is, it is a, a time suck. There's so much lights flashing and colors and you like feel like maybe something's going to happen any moment. I mean, they really put you in this, in this little cocoon of like, okay, I'm ready for the next hit. When's it coming? When's it coming? And of course they can keep you in that state for as long as they want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the dopamine. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why we don't watch it very often. So it's, it's kind of interesting when we do to, to experience this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I can't believe people live this way. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and then just a couple of niggling little, uh, frustrations. Of course, the, the transitions. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> they don't know what to say. Like, like it's, it's so obvious why Wolf Blitzer gets parodied a lot because he is a parody. Like you don't have to write anything. You, can, you could just write a sketch with him saying the actual stuff he says, yeah. where he transitions from an expert speaking about the election by saying, you know, yeah, so it's, you know, some votes are going to come in and some will go to one candidate and others will go to the other candidate. And we'll be here to tell you which is which. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, he is the definition of an anchor in every single way. Like just the absolute base of an anchor. Yeah, an inanimate object that is sitting there and he's being rotated sort of manually (laughs) from from one direction to the next. And yeah, it's uh And I just I just want to put out a call. I feel like Steve Kornacki, because of his shtick. Yeah, his his yeah. personality, MSNBC here, his yeah, uh, his actions, his board, the whole thing. Steve Kornacki, because of his shtick and Chris Hayes, for a, an ineffable reason, I can't quite put my finger on. I think are both prime candidates to be muppetized, <laughs> and I mean that in the most loving way, like <laughs> endearing way. Yeah, totally endearing. Like they, they, we wouldn't be making fun of them. They just. <laughs> really look like you could make a great Muppet sketch <laughs> with those two guys and, you know, others too, but they're, they're just like really primed for it. I feel I like, know. Oh gosh. Oh, yeah. Steve uh, Kornacki is just getting a lot of attention because the man hasn't slept in days. And, you know, I, I give him, I give him credit for like keeping track of all of this and really being in deep on the numbers and everything. But, but I will say every time he gets to the board and he starts rattling things off and doing math and whatever, I'm not sure that I'm like gaining a lot from it. I think he's having a good time and I think he knows what's happening, but I'm not exactly absorbing everything that he's saying. It makes me happy that he's happy. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So moving on to, to, substance. Amanda, you have lots of rants that do. I've you're had, ready to go on. I've been ranting for days and Jay's just been listening to me and now I have a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I don't think what I what I have to say is is all that, you know, shocking or, you know, such a new take. I'm just I'm having the same, you know, uh, awareness that everyone else is that, oh my God, black voters are gonna save America yet again. I mean, that, that is the takeaway that's been super evident since election day, that when things started, any hope that we had on election day, when things weren't looking good, it was in cities with big black populations and where we saw, you know, we knew that there was good turnout there. And it turns out, of course, you know, you're talking about Detroit, 
We're talking about Atlanta. We're talking about Philadelphia. And all eyes are on those cities. And it may be that those cities are what put Joe Biden over the edge. And so yet again, we're just adding to our debt to to black communities who have been, you know, especially black women who have been organizing like crazy. And I just, you know, I I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when the debt gets repaid or how, but I feel extremely strongly and I'm sure other people do, too, that if if the Democrats do not deliver for black communities next year, I would not blame any black voter for just being like, what are we doing? Well, I mean, Democrats already don't overtly support white supremacy. So (laughs) what more do they need? Oh, God. I I know. It's just Joe Biden is not going to have the political capital we thought he was going to have because he, well, I mean, that there's still a chance that we could get the Senate, but it's it's really slim. And that is devastating. I, I think that's one of the other things that was just a gut punch was, okay, we might win this thing, but we might win it without the Senate. And that is... That was like was basically not that that wasn't supposed to happen because because a Joe Biden presidency without the Senate it just takes us back to Obama years where McConnell blocked everything and anything and made life living hell and we're not going to be able to get through climate legislation police reform any of these major initiatives that desperately need to happen, let alone, I mean, maybe you might get a coronavirus relief bill, but honestly, (laughs) the way things have been going, I'm not sure that that's in the bag either. So that's devastating on a million levels. And um, when that started to become very clear that, you know, Georgia is our only hope and Georgia is still in question right now in terms of the presidency, but in terms of those Senate races, it is going to be a, a real, real uphill battle. And, you know, I think organizers are going to shift all of their focus there. And so in some ways that's good because we have a target to really like put a national spotlight on, but in other ways that's going to be, that's going to be intense. That's going to be crazy. And the other side is going to have their sights on that target as well. So uh, yeah, it's, there's no guarantee yeah, runoff, runoff elections are totally exhausting because they become the focal point of the entire country and you get money and attention and influence coming in from all corners directed on this one small area, whatever that is. In, in this case, it's going to be Georgia and the stakes are doubled because there are going to be two uh, runoff races in the Senate. And yeah, it's like if, if, if you thought the exhaustion could end with election day or mm-hmm. election week, it is not. No. election. The election is not over for a couple more months. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is going to... You, do you know when the special election is? Um, or, or January. The, or the, the runoff. Jan- not, it's in January. January. I, I'm just thinking yeah. of the... Um, there's actually, and for anybody listening who knows anyone in Georgia, if someone turns 18 by January 5th, I believe it is, they can participate in that runoff. And so there's a lot of push to get young voters registered who are newly coming of age but yeah it's 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 going to be a long couple months and you know i mean the other thing that everyone's saying that we just need to remember is that 
nearly 70 million Americans have voted for Trump again, and he had an increase in the amount of people who voted for him. And there was a another shocking number of white women who decided to vote for him, an increase from 2016. And, and these are things that, look, they don't change the victory for Joe Biden. They don't change the fact that he's going to win the popular vote by probably 5 million or more. But they, you know, we, we can't go forward without acknowledging this. I mean, those Trump supporters are not going to go away. (laughs) They are not going to stop fighting. They are not going to stop saying that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And uh, we're going to be living with that. It's not, I think there's some, a lot of hope in some corners of the left that is very naive about, well, if Joe Biden just becomes president, then everything will be okay. And (laughs) We are not there, not even close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to back up a bit, did, did you want to talk about vote writers before we got too far away oh, from the yeah. Georgia special? Because mm-hmm. you want to give them, I think you said all of your money? Yeah, all of it. Yeah, right. Yeah, as much as I possibly can. Um, I mentioned vote writers a few times in some of our ac- activism segments over the last 10 weeks uh, leading up to the election, the voting is not enough segments. And And I hope some people dove into who they are and what they do, because when voter suppression laws started becoming, you know, pretty ubiquitous across mostly red states and voter ID laws became uh, a thing in the name of fighting voter fraud, that organization basically made it their entire mission to, you know, there are people who are fighting the laws, right? There are those people and those are heroes and they're out there trying to legally strike down these laws and and make sure that there's more access to the ballot. And then there is vote writers who their entire goal is just like, okay, this is the world we live in right now. And there are other people working to fight these laws. And I think that they also have a faction working to fight them. But the primary goal is making sure that voters who live in states with voter ID laws can get those IDs, that they have the documents that they are now legally bound to have just to get just to vote. And so they literally drive people to the DMV. They literally pay for the IDs themselves. They literally help you if you need documentation to prove, you know, your residency to get the ID. They help you with that. They do like almost everything. They will handhold you through the process for free. They're a democracy concierge service. Absolutely. Like, and sometimes when you're dealing with your state bureaucracy, like you kind of wish you had them, even if you weren't trying to just salvage your right to vote, but um, they're they're amazing. I mean, it's a team of, I think, mostly volunteers. I don't, I don't know how many people are on staff at Vote Riders, but, you know, it's it's an organization worth checking out and, and throwing your support behind because they are, they're doing the, as probably a better term for it, but like the, the in-the-moment work that will actually let people vote right now, you know, before you know, it may take a few years, it may take, I'm not sure how long to kind of strike down some of these voter ID laws and get things in a, in a better situation where more people can vote. So they're doing the work right now to make voting possible for people who are being disenfranchised. And that is huge. And I believe they also drive people like to the polls on election day and all of that as well. So yeah, I mean, I, uh, there there have to be in the same way that there were people on the ground in Georgia, Stacey Abrams uh, organizations and a lot of other organizers who are working in Georgia to register voters and, you know, make sure that people who got purged were re-registered and really turned out the vote in a way that Georgia has never seen before. Like those are 
<laughs> it's one thing to say that you hate voter suppression. It's another thing, per- thing to be literally on the ground fighting it actively. And Vote Riders and Fair Fight and all of these organizations, the, the New Georgia Project, those those people are doing the work. And I think the thing that keeps coming up for me is that, you know, we <laughs> voter suppression is a thing that white people do. And fighting voter suppression is a thing that black people and brown people do. And white people need to be joining forces with the people who are fighting voter suppression in a way that doesn't put it all on their shoulders. And that hasn't really happened yet. You know, I mean, the fact is, if you're white and voting is easy for you and you're not going to and you're way less likely to be disenfranchised, it's not going to you're concerned about it. but It's not going to be your main issue. I think we really need to realign our focus here and think about what ways, what real tangible ways more than donating, but donating is great too, where we can help on the ground to fight these things. There's got to be a shift. White people are not stepping up to the plate. And we can thank Black people over and over again for delivering these victories, but the reasoning is different, you know? Black people didn't come out in droves because Joe Biden's the most amazing person in the world, right? They didn't come out because he's the inspirational candidate. They came out because it's self-preservation, you know, I mean, that they're voting for their lives in a real, real way. It wasn't a favor to us white people <laughs> who don't like Trump. <laughs> like, it was the motivation is different. And we need to start thinking differently about how we fight these things. Yeah. And, and these elections very much get won by boots on the ground. Yeah. You know, it's not like buying ads and trying to persuade people. It, like, we're, we're kind of not in that era anymore. No. No, the 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 polarized era means that money like I I can't believe we're in the situation now, you know, a decade past Citizens Mm -hmm. United that small dollar donations have kind of matched corporate donations in in a big way. And also that is just not the determining factor, it turns out. Yeah. And so the determining factor is boots on the ground, Mm -hmm. volunteers and because voter suppression is the number one tactic of the Republican Party, fighting voter suppression is the number one tactic of, mm-hmm. of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And, and th- like, there's just no more effective way. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and to even add more nuance to that, you know, it's not that money still can't win elections. If it's not countered by any efforts on the ground, money absolutely will be the determining factor. So, so basically, if there's a election where someone's pockets are being flooded with money, but we decide that election's not worth it, well, money's going to take over that election. But if it's in our sights and we say we are going to make the effort to increase turnout and, get people excited about why this is important, then you're going to see different results. So money is, it's powerful, but it does, it's not completely, you know, unchallengeable. Yeah. And in, in this case, there is zero possibility that it, that these races won't be flooded to the brim with money Mm -hmm. on both sides, Mm -hmm. that the money will be there. The ads will be run that is not in question. What is in question is the ground game. I mean, luckily it's Georgia and luckily Stacey Abrams and her team of superheroes are there, but people can't sit back and, Mm -hmm. and think like, good thing she's there to save the day for us. Like she is there to tell you what to do when you show up. Right. 
Exactly, exactly. And I, th- I think I've heard that also from Cori Bush, who recently won election, which was a huge deal. For, she's a Black Lives Matter activist, and she's definitely part of the squad, the expanding squad, which is, you know, there was some good news in this election, and that's one of them. There's there's more members of the squad, no, more justice Democrats, more Democratic socialists were elected. I mean, there were some some big gains here. But she, she specifically said, she's like, you know, Stacey Abrams is amazing. But if you're just now saying, thank you, Stacey Abrams, but you haven't been engaged in the Black Lives Matter movement, and you haven't been talking about how we need to fight voter suppression and all of <laughs> the things that everyone's been talking about this summer. No, this is all connected. This is not separate. Stacey Abrams wasn't, and she, I think she said this in her TED Talk, she's like, you know, revenge, getting revenge is nice, but like, that's not my why, right? Like, of course, it feels good to say screw you to <laughs> Brian Kemp and the GOP after you got completely screwed over in your election. But she's doing it because it's this is fighting for justice. This is fighting for a seat at the table, a voice. And that that is her why. And so we all need to rally behind that because these issues are all connected. The fact that this is the, you know, you hear a lot of white liberals often whine about the black voter turnout when this is the third election in the last 10 years, if I'm doing that math right, without the Voting Rights Act in its full capacity. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's not a lot of black voter turnout. Gee, I wonder why. There's been like absolutely calculated, targeted efforts by the GOP to make sure voters are disenfranchised, voters of color are disenfranchised. So, <laughs> yeah, Carol Anderson, who's like the queen of explaining yeah. voter suppression and and all the efforts to disenfranchise black people in America. I just finally heard, I mean, I've heard a dozen or more interviews with her over the past few years, but I just heard her explain how she got on this topic. Mm-hmm. I just thought, like, she was an expert in this topic mm-hmm. and she's always been doing this. No, no, no. She pivoted to this topic mm-hmm. after 2016 right. when people started complaining about black people not pulling yeah. their weight. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I I know way too much about this to let that slide. Yeah. I'm going to focus Make on this and thing. explain to white people mm-hmm. what's happening to black people. Because mm-hmm. if you think that black people just aren't showing up because they're not enthusiastic enough yeah. about Hillary Clinton and <laughs> they're only willing to come out and vote for a black guy, you know, like you're totally missing mm-hmm. the picture here. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, yeah, I was, I was impressed I mean, that, that she's only pivoted to that in the last four years right, and, right. and is now like the go-to person to explain that to people, yeah. which is extremely needed. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad she did. And in some areas of the country, you know, you're seeing some demographic changes and that that is definitely part of it. But in Georgia, there hasn't been a dramatic demographic shift in Georgia. And so it really was, it was, it was motor voter. That was definitely new. So that helped. But then obviously Stacey Abrams, started these new organizations and they, and they got in there and did the work. And, and I I think the results speak for themselves, right? Oh, was it that black voters weren't interested in coming out and, uh, and voting? No, (laughs) 
<laughs> they needed a path. They needed someone to make sure that they got registered and stayed on the rolls. They needed somebody to tell them, you know, what I actually don't know the details of Georgia's voter ID laws, if they're, you know, what that situation is, but I'm sure that was part of it as well. I mean, there are just so many barriers and I think people underestimate what those barriers are. Same thing with the poor people's campaign. Um, and we talked about this also in the activism segments that, you know, this idea that poor voters just don't want to vote or don't vote and like as though it's not of interest to them. And Reverend William Barber always reminds people that is not the case. It's just that they're trying to put food on the table and take care of their kids and try to keep their job while living in poverty. And that's kind of a full time gig. So when you put even one barrier to voter registration or getting to the ballot or getting to the polls in front of them, then that is a huge barrier. It, it doesn't matter if there's that many more. They they are kind of uh, busy. <laughs> so. And here, let's hear a comment from a listener. I, th- I think just from the slight murmurings I- I've heard so far, I think this is sort of representative of the conversation that's being kicked off about the Democratic Party in general and, and sort of going to lead into a lot of what we we're going to talk about anyway. Hi, Jay. This is Jonathan. The left really needs to examine and understand the 2020 election results. It seems the surge in voting was as much from the right as the left. And there seems to be no middle, people who the squad doesn't appeal to but will stand up for the rule of law and be repelled by what seems to me to be extraordinary corruption of the Trump administration. Or is the ordinary corruption of the system so bad that they don't see Trump as plumbing new depths? Has rule of law always been a fantasy, or something people never appreciate? I'm old enough to remember Watergate, there really was outcry across the spectrum about Nixon. Why hasn't Trump provoked the same sort of reaction? I am also disappointed that inspiring candidates like Raphael Warnock didn't inspire more people, though I do think the Reverend and Stacey Abrams deserve credit for Biden winning Georgia. The Florida Second Chances campaign restored voting rights to 1.4 million people but only about 1 or 2 percent of them actually voted. I know part of the story relates to fines and voter suppression, but I think there were at least 100,000 people who could have voted but didn't bother to. I just got an email saying taxing the rich is the new consensus. I know that polling shows that, but I don't see that in election outcomes. California voters rejected question 15, which would have raised desperately needed property tax revenues. Taxing the rich wasn't a big winning platform, in New York, either. I don't have the answers, but I think we need to be asking more questions. And really be objective, not fool ourselves into believing what we want to be true. What can we learn from the 2020 election? While there were definitely some victories by the left, why weren't there more? The Democrats didn't learn enough from 2016. The left needs to be better at understanding the American people. How can we educate people? How can we appeal to them? How can we mobilize more people? I don't mean to ignore the victories. There were many we should celebrate. But we also need to learn from the losses. Thanks, Jay, for everything you do. As you know, I think the show is great. Okay, so so lots lots to get to here. It's excellent series of comments and questions uh, sends us in a bunch of different directions. The most straightforward, I think, is the the seeming lack of a center that is maybe not totally down with the squad, but is a normal American who abhors corruption and sees Donald Trump for what he is and and you know the and or maybe and, we should call them a moderate American. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's what they were, right? And and so you know, Jonathan is saying like these people seem to not exist, and I would argue that they do exist as humans. <laughs> they just don't exist as votes, A giant voting block, and know? that is because of hyperpolarization. And, mm. and and the easiest way to explain it is to just try to imagine how corrupt Joe Biden would have to be for you to decide. You know what? I'm not okay with that. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump instead. Mm-hmm. Like, how corrupt would he have to be? Pretty corrupt. I, it is really hard <laughs> for me to stretch my mind to a point where I would think, like, no, I mean, I guess we're better off with Trump because Biden is just too far gone. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Because Trump is the definition of too far gone. And in an era of hyperpolarization, a lot on the left, myself included, would argue that for the people on the right to see Joe Biden in that same way and to see him and the squad and Nancy Pelosi as as demonically which is amazing they far- put Nancy Pelosi and the squad they try to tie together so often mm-hmm. they could not be more <laughs> different right they they basically hate each other yeah. and yeah yeah so the, that the right fears and loathes the squad and, and Nancy Pelosi and successfully villainize them yeah. as as much as we hate Trump that we think that's ridiculous right. because there's no reason to fear those people or loathe those people as as much as Donald Trump because Donald Trump really is terrible in terms of corruption in terms of breaking tr- democracy breaking democ- <laughs> democracy trying to destroy the country and all of those things and then like you can agree with his policies. And, you know, I I could say, like, well, I disagree with his policies and you agree with them and that's fine. And you can disagree with AOC or Nancy Pelosi or whoever. And I can say I prefer their policies. But you can't argue that the people on the left are trying to destroy the country. But they do think that. Oh, yeah. That is actually what they They think. They think they're fighting for socialism, that socialism will destroy the country. And you cannot convince them otherwise. (laughs) And and so there was a clip that almost made it in the show, but didn't, that uh, Joe Scarborough had a pretty epic rant about, because Joe Scarborough is a former Republican congressman Mm -hmm. turned MSNBC host. Turned never Trumper. (laughs) Turned never Trumper. And and so a lot of his friends are Republicans. And he went on this pretty epic rant about how a bunch of his friends are sort of holding their nose and voting for Trump. But what they say perfectly openly is that they hate him. Mm-hmm. They hate him. They don't like him or how he acts. They would never invite him over for dinner. They don't <laughs> want their children to see him as a role model in any way, shape, or form. But what about AOC? She's so <laughs> scary. What about Nancy Pelosi? Oh, She's so scary. And that is what hyper polarization does to people and if you can flip the script then you can understand it pretty clearly like like how bad would a democrat have to be to make you think like now it would be better to have trump and mcconnell in charge like i can't imagine democrats Mm -hmm. bad enough to make me think that Mm -hmm. and and so that's and there are some pretty bad democrats but yeah of course (laughs) but they're not mitch mcconnell (laughs) uh and, and let's see the the examples Jonathan gave of, look, all the polls say people want to tax the rich, but then why wouldn't they vote for a property tax increase? I would just argue that, 
and I don't know the details on that California proposition other than that property taxes in people's minds don't focus enough on the rich that when people say tax the rich, they're thinking of the 1% and a lot more than the 1% own property. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there would be a general sense of, yeah, I want to tax the rich, but maybe what they're thinking is property taxes is too broad like focus the taxes on the rich right right and it it might be really it might be not as uh equitable to to do like a sweeping property tax that doesn't disproportionately impact the the extreme you know man you know they own 20 mansions around the state kind of people i mean i don't know i don't know what the the details of that proposition were i i am kind of curious and now i am going to go learn more about it in what ways that ties to school funding in California and if that was part of the conversation because I fundamentally agree we need to restructure how we fund schools and if there was any argument of like if we increase property taxes to help our schools then we're actually hurting ourselves because we don't want to fund schools that way it's inequitable like there's there are details there that I just wonder about yeah we would be further entrenching that system I think I think that I mean it's been a while since I lived in California but I did grow up there and And I mean, I think it was back in the Reagan era when they passed some draconian law that prevented taxes from ever going up. I think specifically property Mm -hmm. taxes from ever going up that they just made it so that it required like a two thirds majority to to approve a tax increase. And so they tried to do it by referendum, which failed. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely funding problems in Mm -hmm. California because Mm -hmm. of that. Like Democrats are in charge, but the Republicans of 40 years ago mm-hmm. managed to put the handcuffs on so that the Democrats yeah. who control the, the, the state don't really have full control over right. how they fund their government. Yep. And, you know, I heard they they struck down rent control, which was really surprising. But, you know, there's been a lot of conversation and I'm only just now kind of seeing some of the analysis on on what happened there. But there's been conversation about the fact that, <laughs> look, Wealthy white liberals often don't, they don't walk the walk very often. And so they say a lot that they believe in and they, you know, will be uh, involved in many ways or whatnot. But but when it comes down to it, of, oh, that affects me actually, like personally in some way, they aren't often willing to 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 vote in the best interests of everyone. And that's that's a problem and we need to talk about that. And this is why there is a fracture in the left coming from the left saying, you guys need to walk the walk. Like we need to actually think about having an equitable society and we need to stop voting for ourselves and think about everyone else. And like, that's a moral referendum, you know, on, on the white liberal left. Yeah, if, if anyone hasn't listened to Nice White Parents yet, that this, yes. this would be a good window into that for the podcast from the New York Times. It's 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 done in, you know, a white woman is the producer host of the series, but I can say from our perspective that we found her to be extremely open-eyed oh yeah and and she because she's one of them right she is one of the nice white parents in many ways and so she's very aware self-aware of that and like well, comes at it from a, from she, a more not i mean she's not not I so she she's self-aware like, no, no no she is a nice white parent but she's self-aware okay yeah, because most nice white it. parents aren't self-aware right. <laughs> which is kind of the whole point of the story and, and just in terms of they like to 
say the right things, but don't all often do the right mm-hmm. things. That story about school really exemplifies the dynamic that plays itself out over and over again, which is that what is good in the social sense is not always the best decision for the individual. Yeah. So talking about like, you may be so pro you want integration in schools. That's totally something you believe in, but when it comes down to it, you don't end up making the choices and decisions and, and, you know, getting in behind the right moves to actually actually make that a thing or maybe you because personally decide oh well this this is good for everyone but i just personally think for my kids i'm going to do something different there's so much of that cognitive dissonance going on it it, I, it doesn't even have to be cognitive dissonance it is logical decisions being made but it's because of the structures that have been set up that a person can be in favor of integration and for for all the right reasons or some of the wrong reasons or or whatever, but they, they can be in favor of it. And then, but what they have in mind is integration where genuinely all the schools are treated the same mm-hmm. and genuinely all the kids get the same resources. And genuinely you would have no problem sending your kid to one school or another. And so helping schools be integrated racially is like a bonus, but if you are put in a situation where the school with the brown kids is underfunded and you don't have to send your kid there, right. then won't. then you can be totally in favor of integration. But as they said very bluntly on the show, like maybe I don't want to sacrifice my child to a system that is underfunded. Mm-hmm. And so then it perpetuates the problem, but you can make the extremely rational decision that me personally making this sacrifice isn't going to make the structural change. So you can be in favor of the structural change without, you know, taking the personal action before the structural change has happened. It reminds me of, you know, like, but I guess I would just add that. Yes. And I agree with all of that, but also the, there, there are many of these people they talk to. And again, we should just go listen to it, but just to summarize this piece, there, there are people they talk to who are, whether or not wherever they send their kids almost doesn't matter. They're like, well, I want to get involved. I want to help. And the way that they help is unhelpful. <laughs> yeah. And there's this, in, and in fact makes things worse or perpetuates the problem in some way. And like they, and they kind of don't understand it until they've gone through the process of, of doing it wrong. <laughs> and then afterwards are like a little bit woken up by, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see what I did there. <laughs> uh, on the, on the issue of the, the social versus the personal, it reminds me of one of the dumbest sort of rebuttals to liberals calling for higher taxes mm-hmm. and conservatives will say like, you're free to pay more. Oh, I know. Yeah. What, what, if you're in favor of your taxes being higher, why don't you just pay more than you owe? Mm-hmm. And what they think is if you then respond, no, I'm, I, I think I'm going to pay what I, I owe am. and everyone <laughs> should pay what they owe, then they think you're a hypocrite. Yeah. And the point is that to pay more taxes individually doesn't help structure. Right. And so you are sacrificing individually for no benefit, Mm -hmm. but to be in favor of structurally enforcing that everyone pay more would benefit all of society structurally, and you would then be happy to pay into that as part of society. Mm -hmm. And and so that that's the choice that a lot of people are set up with is, do I make a personal sacrifice that doesn't benefit society? Mm -hmm. 
no, I don't want to make a personal sacrifice that isn't beneficial to anyone, but I am in favor of a big structural change. So it's not necessarily cognitive dissonance. It's not necessarily hypocrisy. It's the problem of needing to move together. Everyone has to buy in and change the system so that it isn't a sacrifice for anyone to do the right thing. That's how you, you like you get people to do the right thing by making it not be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean it's complicated, and there are obviously people have their own individual reasons for why they do things, not just necessarily a personal gain, but like maybe they know someone and they've heard an anecdotal story about blah 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 blah. You know, I mean, there's so many reasons that people vote against what they actually believe in. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I think California. Specifically talking about these referendums, I mean, yeah, they vote down, they they voted down uh, Uber and Lyft drivers, et cetera, being um, employees versus independent contractors. They, again, the rent control issue, they voted that down. I mean, there there are a lot of things there that I, I hear you, I hear you, the, the, our, our caller, Jonathan. yeah, Jonathan being being frustrated with like, but I see the polls and I see people say they support these things and they're not actually coming to fruition. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And some of it is money in politics and corporate influence. Because, for instance, in Massachusetts, one of the ballot initiatives was about, you know, whether you should have access to the um, data that your car collects. And it was, they put uh, both sides spent tens of millions of dollars on advertisements in Massachusetts. Both were polarizing extremes of the best and worst case scenarios of this, you know, potential referendum on giving people access to their own data and, you know, scaring people into thinking that, oh, your stalker is going to be able to find you now. And like, really just like fear mongering at its worst. And, you know, the other side was like every single individual car manufacturer or car, um, mechanic is going to go out of business and, you know, just these extremes, right? And is there some truth to some of it? Like, yeah, maybe somewhere if you look from a certain angle, but that's another factor. And California's ballot initiatives are famous for being these like huge issues where, you know, lobbyists and industry will dump money into fighting one way or the other and leaving people mostly just fucking confused. I mean, like, I think that's what happened in, in Massachusetts was people were just like, and that's my home state. And I talked to people about this and people are just like, I just don't even know anymore. <laughs> like what what is the right answer even when they go and research it it's complicated and like they don't they just don't know right sadly ranked choice voting lost in massachusetts speaking of another ballot initiative from a liberal state that should have passed that they did not and that was a hard blow and it's again because well that sounds complicated someone told me that sounded complicated i don't know like maybe that's not as good as i thought it, it's a it's a it's a chaotic situation. The media doesn't help, unfortunately. I found that there wasn't a lot of effort by, you know, papers like the Boston Globe or whatever, really trying to clear things up for voters. They mostly just repeat the same crap that's being put out in these ads from both sides and then are like, here you go, make a decision. Like, well, yeah, I already heard all that. <laughs> so th- there's way more than just people, you know, making these kind of anti-liberal decisions when they claim to be liberal. There's there's so many factors involved. I don't know if people in Massachusetts would be more likely to think, well, if maniacs can have ranked choice <laughs> that's, voting. That's not a good, oh, that's, I, no, that's a derogatory term. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Mainers. <laughs> right, right. If, if Mainers can have ranked choice voting, well, then we can definitely handle it. Or if they would think, 
Well, if Mainers are doing it, <laughs> I don't know if we want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I'm not- oh, no. Everyone had an anecdotal story about someone they knew from Maine who said it was awful. That was mostly what was going on. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's hard to watch these things <laughs> fail in liberal states. That's that's really painful. And and then the, the last of Jonathan's questions that I thought we would just touch on is, what do we do to get people more involved and engaged and active and all yeah, that. Yeah. And look, I think that everyone needs to have this. This has been a hard four years, really, really unbelievably hard four years. And it's not going to get any easier <laughs> after this election is over. If it's ever going to be over um, someday, apparently it will be. But I think we all need to sit with ourselves, especially white people, myself included. I think like, I don't, you know, exclude myself from this. I think we all need to sit and have like a, just a little bit of a self-reflection time of looking at the last four years and think about what you actually did. So you've been angry and you've been upset and you've been righteously angry and upset. And maybe you protested and maybe you went out in the streets and did something. Maybe you donated to some new organizations, but, but think about what you've done and what you haven't done. And I think that's that's what I'm doing right now as well. Like we're just, I think we're thinking about what can we do better? And a lot of it for white people, and I don't know, I'm just saying this, this is just my personal opinion. I think a lot of it is talking to each other. And I think that because of the really extreme polarized moment that we're in, People don't want to talk to each other. They'd unfriend people on Facebook before they would have a political conversation or they would get in a political conversation. It would go badly and they'd say, forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. (laughs) You know, and Facebook isn't the right medium for that. So that's one part of it. But, you know, black people have been saying to white people for forever, (laughs) go get your people. And we didn't do that. We didn't go get our people. We got in fights with them online and then cut them out of our lives, for the most part. I'm not saying everyone did this. Some people still have family members that they're working on, right? They're planting seeds. They're trying to start the process of breaking out of the cult of personality and like help them think critically and whatnot. But, but I, and I think we talked about this a long time ago. I think we talked about this like right after the 2016 election that the work that is, it is going to take to actually change things, to actually, and even amongst other liberal white people to really, really change things and have things go in the right direction requires incredible patience. In, the patience of a black woman. <laughs> That's what it requires. And we don't have that naturally because we're not under threat in the same way. And so it is very hard to automatically think oh, this is a huge deal. I need to like get involved in this because we personally, even if we have empathy for someone else, if we see what's happening to somebody else, it's hard to really get in the mindset of, I need to be a warrior in this. And so I just would recommend some, some deep reflection right now. We got two months of what will probably be total chaos, but if you have some time (laughs) to, to sit with and think about what you've done in the last four years. And if you think it was effective, is there something else you could do that's more effective? And are there people in your life, you know, if they're lost causes, they're lost causes. I don't expect anybody to, to try to, you know, literally flip a, a Trumper who is so far down 
the rabbit hole, you can't see them anymore, you know. But if there's someone in your life that you think you could plant some seeds with, plant some seeds. And and I think personally, that's been my approach lately, especially with some of people I know who are a little bit more on the religious side and who are very anti-choice. I'm just trying to plant a seed here and there. And with Black Lives Matter and the conversations around what's been happening this summer. I I think out of the gate, I got a little too aggressive thinking that, no, this is what has to happen. I have to be aggressive, but I, I don't think, I think when you get too aggressive, the listening stops. And so I've been, I have a different approach now. I'm trying to plant seeds and that's my, I'm a seed planner right now. (laughs) That's my approach. And I'll do other things that are different and more, more active and more, you know, engaging, but, but we cannot continue to not talk to each other. It's not helping. So. And lessons from 2016, Jonathan also talked about how he didn't learn enough lessons from 2016, which got us thinking about the, I mean, maybe it's a dead horse. We don't need to beat like we are not in the, the, anti-Clinton left or the anti-Biden left that was, you know, the, the, twisting themselves into a pretzel, arguing that it would actually be better for the left to withhold your vote from corporate Democrats, come what may, and look like maybe after four years of Trump, it'll be great for the left because he'll be so terrible, which he was, mm-hmm. that we'll be so radicalized that we'll get a Bernie Sanders presidency and all of Congress because we'll be so energized. Oh, no, wait, that didn't happen yep. at all. It did not happen. So so, so may, maybe it's a dead horse that we don't need to beat, but it's worth putting a pin in, in that strategy mm-hmm. to just say, like, here's what happened. When you allowed f- for the accelerationist theory to play out i mean not that most people were in favor of it Mm -hmm. but this you know small wedge of people are in favor of accelerationism let's have things get as bad as possible as fast as possible so that we can bounce back Mm -hmm. that what ended up happening is we ended up so exhausted from the terror swamp that the most we could muster was just give me the most boring moderate guy you can find, <laughs> which black people sort of took the helm on that during the primaries and and uh, and put weight on the scale. Some black people, yes. Some obviously an, some an effective number of an effective people. number of black people and steered the race towards Joe Biden with the not unreasonable thinking that look, we can't afford to try to do anything better than that because white people won't go for anything better than that. Yeah. And and honestly, and this has been said a number of times, black people do know what white people are going to do. And Be- better it, than, better we do. than we do. I, I mean, it, it they've kind of proven it over and over and over again. And I, I just think we need to kind of, we need to just acknowledge that. <laughs> you know, it, look, and you can also argue, you can make the argument that the DNC, like the whole thing was fixed and it was, you know, like going to be Joe Biden no matter what. Like, sure, you can make that argument to a point, but it doesn't it doesn't account for all of it. It doesn't account for 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 what for everything that ended up happening. And I think I don't know, there have been times over the last few months 
when Joe Biden was the nominee, where I thought, yeah, if it was someone else, I think we'd be having more problems. I, and I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. That's what it is. No, but. I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm still in, in the camp that thinks that Bernie would do better because the only thing that props Trump up is economic populism. I know, but the only problem is that Bernie has been labeled so much as a socialist that, and we just talked about how that is such a scary thing for people on the right. Like it, it's, I don't know. We don't know yet, right? We're still, we're still, well, we'll never still know. trying to figure it's out exactly that. like, yeah, this is, this hasn't been analyzed fully yet. We're living in it right now, but I don't know. And, I, and, and there's no way to know the, the alternate universe. But I mean, what, what we're saying is not that. Joe Biden was definitely the right pick because look how easily he won. Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. The, the point is that accelerationist idea certainly didn't work. Right. We didn't get what we wanted. Yeah. We're, we're People weren't going to – I just think it was less likely that people were going to pull from one extreme all the way over to another. And not to say that Trump and Bernie are remotely the same. I'm just saying the – in terms of the Overton window, like what we're what we're talking about here, I think it was going to be really difficult for the the country to to pull all the way over. And and look, we've made huge strides. Like the fact that the SWAT the squad is basically in probably for a long time, I think, and we've expanded <laughs> those people in office. DSA candidates are are climbing up in state legislatures. The progressive movement on the coming from the left has been building since Occupy in a way that it feels slow, I think, to a lot of people. But actually, like I would argue from the 10,000-foot view, it's gone pretty well. (laughs) And those people, I think that this is the other piece of it, the people who have become stars like AOC, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, etc., those people have become mega stars, not just, oh, this left-wing person joined the house. They have become a voice, like who is heard and interviewed and has a presence on social media and is, is inspiring people that, and I think that that is huge. And I think that is why we're going to see this movement grow. And so I would not lose complete hope that just because Joe Biden is a neoliberal moderate, like that we're not going to get anything out of this, but I think it's just happening slower than people would like. And I can understand the frustration there, but, but I think it is happening. <laughs> yeah. My, my point that I was trying to draw to about economic populism mm-hmm. is that that is like literally the thing that people like about Trump enough to continue voting for him, even when they hate him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and there were, I think a couple of different comments I saw, but I have James Carville, who's oh, goodness. <laughs> who's a maniac from a different era, <laughs> and he makes statements that are true, but seems to not understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. He just mentioned in sort of a puzzled way at some point that Florida passed the $15 minimum wage at the same time as they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And and seems to like not be able to put, put two and together. two together yeah. and figure out that oh because he he actually brought this up in the middle of praising the Democratic Party for keeping the socialists at bay, and yeah. then mentioned that Florida passed the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Like oh no wait maybe people are in favor of economic populism mm-hmm. maybe they want 
things like the $15 minimum wage, and they don't see that as radical. But they're they, deluded into thinking Trump will deliver for And they donuts. don't see the Democratic Party as doing that. And then a GOP insider, just quoting from an article, says uh, other Republicans saw the beginnings of political transformation in the GOP to turn it into a new party of the working class. One veteran, one veteran uh, Republican operative focused on Trump's strong performance with minority voters, saying, quote, nothing has happened to the Republican Party like this since Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The operative continued, quote, Donald Trump has given us a gift, and whether he wins or loses, we have to continue down that path. And this is something that George Will and Mitt Romney could never have accomplished. Trump was able to totally falsely pivot the Republican Party to present itself as the party of the working class, Mm -hmm. which it is 100% not. But... But they've been able to but, paint that picture but, somehow. Yeah. And and they made it really clear. It wasn't in that quote, but I, it maybe it was in that article that they actually specifically said that is what the Democratic Party used to be. And we have been able to take that mantle. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. Like for a long time, we had two parties, neither of which was working for the working class. That is still the case. But it is ridiculous that the Republican Party could potentially present itself that way mm-hmm. and get enough people to believe it to be true only because the Democratic Party is even worse about making that argument. That is profoundly unsettling, yeah. I- but also not surprising because the Democratic Party has been really terrible at dealing with working class issues yeah. for a really long time. And, and I completely agree with all of that. And I'm just going to add an and to it. I think we're, we we do probably underestimate the racism that goes along with people on the right these days, because that economic populism has always been tied to they took our jobs, right? It's always been tied to immigration. So that's how they pretended to be friends of the worker while implementing racist policies. Look at this evil person who's crossing the border and taking your, your jobs, even though these are jobs that <laughs> these white people wouldn't do at all. Those things are very, very much tied together. And so what it would what would be nice is seeing the Democrats embrace the working class, embrace, you know, unions in a in a more forefront champion way, and also talk about fighting racist policies and making sure that opportunities are available for for, you know, black indigenous people. Like we gotta we gotta re So the Republicans have done a good job of putting those two together, and the Democrats have to make a different connection to the economic populist message, because there has to be, it can't just be, well, we're anti, we're not, we're anti-racist, but we don't have solutions for you in terms of the job situation or, you know, how to increase your wages and give you labor rights. Like it has to come together in a way that works and sadly, the Republican message on that has seemed to be too easy to make. Like, <laughs> and people aren't willing to think too deeply about it, right? They just want someone to be angry at. They want that uh, scapegoat. So I don't know. I, I mean, like, I haven't really felt like Joe Biden has presented that yet. And honestly, I don't know that he will unless we take the Senate. So I, I, I'm more and more 
I think it was Jane Kuger from TYT who said the other day that not getting the Senate is a gift to Joe Biden because he can get away with not passing major climate legislation because he can just say, oh, I can't do a Senate. <laughs> and, you know, major criminal justice reform or police reform or whatever, because, well, I can't do it. I don't have the votes. Well, we have two last shots at getting the Senate. I don't want to be fighting for Joe Manchin's vote. So we kind of have to make sure that we have a majority here. And that's your chance. Like, that's our chance. If we don't get the Senate, then you can pretty much kiss all the leverage that the left, like the, you know, the left coming from the left uh, has. Because without the votes, they can make the argument that this is too hard and we can only use our political capital for certain things, which are going to be neoliberal things. And so that's that's the shot. That's the last shot. If we don't get the Senate, there's no way to push Joe Biden to be better than he's going to be. Those are very good yes ands. I'm, I'm glad those improv <laughs> classes have been paying off. So that, that's it for today. Get in touch with us as always. You can leave us a voicemail at 202-999-3991 or email us directly either just to chat or as a voicemail message. You can reach me at j at bestofleft.com. And Amanda at bestofleft.com. And I just want to give a quick shout out to everybody who was a poll worker, election worker, volunteer out there, any of our listeners who, who did that. You're basically protecting democracy and you should be really proud of yourselves. And like, that's, that's part of the real work, right? Like getting involved in a real, real way. So thank you. Thank you for your for your efforts. I wonder if we'll hear from Aaron from Philly. That's right. Aaron from Philly was one of those polls. people who worked the polls in Philadelphia, which is the <laughs> star city right now. So, yeah, I I, uh, I would like to hear about her experience and see see how it went. And with that, as always, thanks for listening. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. Stay awesome.